If you lived, if you lived in the city of Philadelphia, you might say that you lived in the city of brotherly love. If you lived in the city of New York, you probably might say that you lived in a city that never sleeps. If you lived in Los Angeles, you might say, I lived in the city of angels. Of course, if you lived in Las Vegas, you might say that I live in Sin City. And if you lived in the city of Pergamum around the first century, you might say that I live in the city of Satan. I live in the city where Satan dwells. And so today, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we come to our third letter that Jesus writes to his church. So let me just remind you a little bit. I want to kind of give you a general background of the book of Revelation, a general background of the, of, of the letters that we're going to be dealing with, and then we'll, uh, we'll look more closely at the church in Pergamum. Just real quickly, um, Revelation in general, just the book in general, in, in, in the book we see that Satan is depicted as the dragon or that serpent of old. You'll recall the serpent in the garden, and John goes back and calls this dragon that he sees in one of his visions, and he calls him that serpent of old. And we'll see that this dragon empowers this beast. And there's a, John sees a vision of a beast coming up out of the, out of the sea. And we see that the serpent of old empowers the beast. He empowers the beast to persecute the church. He empowers another beast that is called the harlot to seduce the church. And so we see these two beasts and one of them... Um, persecutes the church and one of them seduces the church. All of these beasts, both of these beasts are empowered by Satan. And so that's kind of the general background of where we're going to be going and just a, a quick, very, the book with a very, very broad stroke. The letters in general, basically, we have seen that Jesus has commissioned the Apostle John to write letters to seven various churches. They are seven literal churches that existed at the time that John lived. They are part of a larger vision that John had. You recall in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, John had this, this vision of the resurrected Christ. John had seen Christ in his resurrected body, but he had never seen Christ in this glorious state. And now John is seeing things as they truly are. Remember, the book of Revelation is about seeing things as they really are. We look out at this world and we see things going on and we see injustice and we see poverty and we see all of these things and we think that it is the powerful who have the upper hand, it is the um, strong who are in control of things, 
But the book of Revelation peels back the curtain and allows us to see things as they really are, and that the one who is truly in control of all things is God Almighty, and that we see Jesus Christ as the glorious, ascended, and risen Lord who sits upon the throne and rules the world with with power and with might, and he is the one who is coming again. And so John gives a glimpse of this risen and ascended Christ. We, John sees him no longer in his humility, but sees him in his exaltation. When I speak of Christ in his humility, what I'm referring to is Christ in his physical state. Christ humbled himself, put on flesh, and became a man, and dwelt among us. Christ in this state of humiliation or humility actually had to depend on human beings for his very existence. I mean, he had to rely upon when he was an infant, somebody had to feed him and teach him, train him to speak. He learned to read. And he grew in grace and favor and in wisdom and knowledge. But now John sees Christ not in that humiliation, not in that state of humility, but in the resurrected, glorious state of who Christ really is. Again, he's seeing things as they really are. He's not seeing Christ as the man who walked the earth and hungered and thirsted and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But as the risen, glorious Lord of all things, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And John, when he saw this, fell at his feet like a dead man. And Jesus, this risen, ascended king, commissioned John to write write this book, this letter, the book of Revelation. It is a single letter. And he has specific messages for seven churches. We need to remember that it is Jesus who walks amongst the churches. And while the letter was written to seven individual, literal churches, I believe that we can also safely conclude that it is written to all churches of all times. The reason I say that is because in Revelation, and because of the type of writing it is, numbers are significant and numbers are generally symbolic. And seven has the idea of completion, or fullness, or fulfillment. So when John writes to seven churches, he's writing to all churches. And of course, we also understand that at the end of each of these letters to the churches, um, we see this phrase, um, hear what the Spirit says to, not the church, but to the churches. And so these letters, while written to seven individual churches, I believe have a message and, and have relevance for you and I today. So we can easily say this this letter doesn't have anything to do with us. It would have to do with the church written way back in the first century. It really doesn't have anything to do with us today. Or we can read this, I believe, correctly and say that, yes, it was written to a church in Pergamum at the end of the first century. And it has relevance and meaning to us today. Before we look closely at this, let me give you a little bit, bit of background on Pergamum City. Um, Pergamum was famous for a lot of different things, but one of the things Pergamum was famous for was it was famous for religion. 
Now, here's John. This is Patmos, alright? So this is where John was writing from, this little island, alright? And then the first letter went here to Ephesus, the second letter here to Smyrna, and then up north is Pergamum, and this is where our next letter is written to. So you can see, John, all these letters kind of form a, a, a circle. And Pergamum was known for a number of different things, but one of the things that Pergamum was most famous for was worship and religion. It had many temples. It had a temple to Zeus. It had a temple to Athena. It had a temple to Dionysus. And it had a temple to As Asclepius. I always struggle with that. Asclepius was also known as Savior, sometimes regarded as our Savior. And uh, Asclepius was symbolized, he was known as the Serpent King, or the Serpent God, and became known for healing. How many of you have ever looked in a physician's office and seen the serpent? You know where that comes from? It comes from here. So here's just a little uh, schematic of kind of the main area of Pergamum in, in, uh, in the time in which John lived. If you were to look now, you would find, um, you, you'll see a lot of pictures of this theater right here. Here, right here, is the Temple of Dionysus. Right here is the Temple of Zeus. Here is the Temple of Athenus. And, uh, and here would be the temple for the, um, the cult of the king, the uh, of, uh, of the emperor. Because of all the, the gods that were worshipped, and many gods were worshipped and uh, were exalted in Pergamum, the main one was worshipping uh, the emperor, was the imperial cult, cult of Caesar. Basically, worshipping Trajan. You'll begin to notice that worshipping the emperor seems to be fairly common in all of these letters. All citizens were expected to participate in emperor worship. If you were to be a citizen of this area, you would have to participate in emperor worship. You would have to say that Caesar is Lord. And as I've explained before, if you did not say Caesar is Lord, you would not be able to buy or sell. And so we have the city of Pergamum, a place that is known for its religion, a place that is known for its, work, for its paganism, and basically a variety of different ways of salvation. You can come to salvation through Zeus, or you can come through salvation through the serpent god, you can come to salvation through worshipping the emperor. And it is in this background now that we have this letter that Jesus transcribes, or has John write, to this church. And here it is in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And so we begin with this identification as Jesus, as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. You'll recall way back in chapter 1, when John saw this vision of Christ, he saw that a sword came out of it, a sharp two-edged sword came out of his mouth. I think that John clearly saw that. And we see that Jesus is in the book of Revelation, oftentimes referred to as, or pictured or seen as the one who has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. I think that this is symbolic. I have a feeling that when we stand before Christ face to face on that wonderful and glorious day, he will not have a sword coming out of his mouth. I think John really saw that. That was the vision, but the vision was pointing to something else. And the, and the sword of Christ now is most, would be referring to the authority of His Word. Jesus is, going to, is describing Himself in a way that is uniquely relevant for this church. And we'll see that as we go through. And this sword coming out of his mouth, this authority to judge, this authority to exercise rule and dominion and kingship and lordship is uniquely relevant to this church who is living in the midst of Satan's throne. The sword often represents, in Scripture, the sword often represents the ability to judge and the ability to rule. We see this in in Romans chapter 13, where Paul is talking about civil governments. And he's talking about the civil government, and he says, the civil government does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, it has the authority to exercise judgment and justice upon those who break the laws. We certainly can relate to that. That our civil government has authority to exercise rule and power and exercise justice. And if you break a law, there are many ways by which the civil government may enforce those laws. And so in the days when Paul wrote, he says the civil government, if you break a law, it doesn't exercise the sword in vain. In other words, it, it exercises judgment and rule. 
And so just as Rome bore the sword in its civil government, the ability to execute justice and to right wrongs and to punish those who break her laws, just as Rome bore the sword, so Jesus is the true and eternal judge who has the authority and the ability to exercise rule. He is the king, and he also bears the sword, and he is the eternal judge who will rule the living and judge the living and the dead. Rome is not your ultimate authority. The civil government is not the ultimate rule. In the end, it is Jesus Christ who rules and reigns and bears the sword of judgment. Jesus is the true judge, and Jesus is the one who has ultimate power. You will see that what comes out of his mouth is a two-edged sword. You can probably understand this in a variety of ways, but I just think it's interesting. It's two-edged. It cuts both ways. Swing it one way, and it's judgment. Swing it another way, and I believe we will see that Christ wields the sword with precision, with the precision of a surgeon to cut away sin and expose our very thoughts and intentions, as the book of Hebrews says. The Word of God, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts so that it can even divide between your thoughts and intentions. We read God's Word, and it exposes our motives, it exposes our intents, it exposes our sin, and it does so so that Christ, with great precision, will cut that away from us. It is both an instrument of life because it removes the cancer that will eat away at us and destroy us. And it is the instrument of judgment because we will be judged by God's Word. It slices away the cancer of sin to make us whole. And it cuts away all excuses. It exposes our very, the very secrets of our soul. And it will provide a just verdict. And so we see at the very beginning our Lord and Savior with a broad, with a sharp two-edged sword extending out of his mouth. His word is authoritative. His word will judge. His word will expose all the motives of men's hearts. His word will expose even to the thoughts and intents of your heart. I don't know your thoughts and I don't know your intents and I don't know your motives. And you can, I say this often, you can fool me. But you can't fool the all-seeing Christ our Lord who knows all things and he will judge all things by his word. And he will stand accountable for his word. It is this one, the one who has this sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I know where you live. You live right in the midst of Satan's throne. You live right in the midst of where he rules. You live right in the midst of where he is active and powerful. I know where you live. 
it's good to know, I think it's good to know that Jesus knows where we live. Now some of you get it right to think, oh, this makes me a little uncomfortable. I wish you didn't know everything. But he does. Jesus knows exactly where this church, the church on Randall Place is. He knows our sins and he knows those things we do well. And here he begins, as he does with so many of the letters, he begins with commending the church. I know the good things that you've done. I know all of these things. Sometimes we think that Christ only knows the bad things that we do. But Christ knows when you do something good and you're mocked for it. Christ knows when you serve Him faithfully and you're disparaged for it. Christ knows when your motive is right and everybody says you're, you're engaged in rebellion. Christ knows that too. You've ever been falsely accused, falsely judged, I want you to know that Christ knows. I know where you live. I know that you're right in the midst of paganism and you're right in the midst of where Satan has his power. I know that you, Church of Pergamum, you live in a bad neighborhood. You live in a neighborhood dominated by paganism. I know that you live in a Neighborhood that claims there are many ways to God. You can follow the serpent God, or you can follow Zeus, or you can give your allegiance to Caesar. All of these are means and ways to be saved. I know where you live. I know that you live where Satan's authority holds sway. You'll notice that there, when we looked at our little map, there was no temple to Satan. They didn't actively have any temple to Satan. But by worshiping all of these false religions, they, in effect, were giving allegiance to Satan. Because all false religion, all false faith, all paganism has Satan as its empowering master. I know that's where you live. If you look at, we're going to see in Revelation chapter 13, we see. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. Let me, uh, let me go back and read verse 1. And the dragon, and the dragon in the book of Revelation is identified as Satan. And the dragon stood at the, on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And this beast, which I saw, the one who came up out of the sea, I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like a mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. And Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. He's, where you live is dominated by the beast. It is Satan who gives this beast his great authority. Later on in Revelation chapter 13, we'll see another horrific beast empowered by the dragon. This one's a little bit different, though. This one does not conquer by power, 
that conquers by seduction and deceit. So Jesus knows. He says, I know Satan is working through these earthly, ungodly political powers in Pergamon in order to oppress you. I know that. I know where you live. You live where, this, where the dragon has his power and he empowers the beast. These political forces to oppress you and to persecute you and to kill you. In fact, even to the place where some will die. And this is his combination. You will, in spite of this, in spite of where you live, in spite of the neighborhood in which you live, in spite of the fact that you are living in the place where Satan the dragon has power and has authority, you hold fast to my name. In the midst of all of that, you hold fast to my name. And you hold fast to your faith in me. Despite the neighborhood, you are faithfully, faithfully maintaining a witness to me. And you are unwilling to be silenced. The beast rises up and tries to silence you through threats and intimidations. And you will not back down, even to the point of death. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, he gave his life for my name. He would not be persuaded, and he would not back down, and he would not say Caesar is Lord. And even then, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, you stood firm, and you would not back down. Even when it was prudent to be silent. It would have been much, much more pragmatic just to keep your mouth shut. Say nothing. Go about your business. Do what you need to do. Go along to get along. But you wouldn't do that. You said, no, I'm going to stand for the Lord. Even though it would cost you your life. You hold fast to my name. And you will not tolerate paganism that is in the outside culture trying to infiltrate its way into the church. You reject that. You refute that. And you say, no, we will have nothing to do with Zeus or Dionysus or Athena or any of these other gods. We will have nothing to do with them, even if it costs our lives. This is Christ's commendation to the church. You do well. I know what you're doing. You do this well. Way to go. Good job. You're being faithful. And as we see in many of the letters, the commendation is followed by a condemnation. But I have this against you. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you have some who are in the same way holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Here's the condemnation. The condemnation is that you tolerate false teachers. Now, I don't know if this seems like to you some sort of strange paradox, but the Pergamon church is paradoxical. Because on the one hand, it is really strong against the external threats of Rome. Even to the point of being faithful and dying for the sake of Christ. These external threats, man, we're going to stand against them. No paganism in our church. No Zeus worship. No snake god worship. None of that stuff in our church. Even if it costs us our lives. 
on the other hand, paradoxically, you allow false teachers to rise up amongst you. How does that work? They are devoted to the gospel truth in one sense, but then they're willing to compromise the very ethical truths of that same gospel. So they uphold the gospel, but then they deny the ethical mandates of the very gospel they claim to uphold. This is an interesting church. On the one hand, we're holding fast. On the other hand, we're willing to compromise. I think I can learn a lesson. There are some areas where, you know, we're really strong, and in other areas, it's like, oh, we just let our guard down, and we just give in, or we just say, oh, well, that's okay. Well, then we should ask ourselves the question, what's being tolerated? The worship of Zeus is not being tolerated. The worship of Dionysus is not being tolerated. They're not giving a pinch of incense and saying, Caesar is Lord. That's not being tolerated. What's being tolerated? Well, he tells us. You have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Well then, what did Balaam teach? You'll find the teaching in the account of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22 through 25. I will not read all of those chapters. You can go home and read the account of Balaam. But let me give you a brief synopsis of what Balaam taught. Balaam, by the way, became kind of a byword for false teachers. We see in 1 Peter and in Jude um, this, this continual um, condemnation of the teaching of Balaam. So throughout Scripture, we actually see that Balaam is kind of a, a byword or a category of, to just like, you're, if you're teaching the teaching of Balaam, you're, you're a false teacher. So what did Balaam teach? Most of us know the, the, the account of Balaam and, and the donkey. But let me go beyond that show you a little bit about what Balaam was teaching. You'll recall Israel came out of Egypt with a great and mighty hand of God. They crossed the Red Sea and they were moving across the wilderness into the land of promise. And as they were moving across the, 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 the desert, the Sinai desert, there was a bunch of them. Millions of people. They had some military successes, and as they were coming into some populated areas, some of the towns and cities and nations started thinking, you know, man, millions of people, that could pose a threat to us. So what are we going to do? How are we going to fight this group of people? Well, a king by the name of Balak, the king of Moab, he saw that Israel was coming his direction, and he says, well, I've got to stop them somehow. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire somebody, a prophet, to go curse them. And if they're cursed, then they'll lose any battles that we fight with them. So that's the idea. I'm going to hire somebody, some prophet, to go and curse them. So he hires Balaam. So Balaam. Come, and I want you to curse the Israelites, and I'll pay you good money. Now, Balaam's kind of interesting, because he, he even tells right up front, he says, I can only, you know, if God tells me to curse them, I'll curse them. If God tells me to bless them, I'll bless them. So you're going, Balaam's not so bad of a guy. He seems like he's okay, even though he's taking money from Balak to curse God's people. 
But he does say, hey, listen, right up front, and I'll only do what God tells me to do. So Balaam comes along and um, gets up on this high mountain, and he overlooks the camp of Israel, and instead of cursing Israel, he blesses Israel. And Balak gets all upset, going, wait a second, I paid you good money. And I paid you good money to curse Israel and instead to bless them. And so this, this thing goes on for a while and Balaam just keeps blessing Israel. And Balaam's getting more and more upset on paying the money. How much more does it cost? And finally Balaam says, I can only bless them. They're God's people. That's the only thing I can do is bless them. So you got to be thinking, well, Balaam was such a bad guy. Why is he such a heretic? Why is he labeled such a bad guy? Because Balaam comes up with another plan. And here's the plan. Balaam says to Balak, king of Moab, Balak, I can only bless him. I can't curse him. So here's what you do. I've noticed that we've kind of some of our dinners, Balak. I've, I've noticed you, you've got some attractive women in your country. And I've noticed your false gods that you worship. So here's what I propose. you got a bunch of lonely guys over there in Israel. They've been crossing the desert and, you know, been a long journey. You ought to take some of your attractive young ladies and maybe uh, have a party with the Israelites. Put on a big dance. And get your attractive women to seduce the men of Israel so that they will begin to engage in the, in the worship of your false idols and in the sexual immorality with your young ladies. See, here's what I know, Balak. I can't curse them. I can only bless them. But if Israel begins to worship false gods and engage in sexual immorality, God will curse them. And God will judge them. So here's what I propose you do. You send the Moabite women over there and you get them to engage in false worship and you get them to engage in sexual immorality and I don't need to curse them because God will judge them. That was the plan. I have this against you. There are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So we see these two things, idolatry and immorality, as being the cornerstones of the teaching, the false teaching of Balaam. And Jesus says, you, you people in Pergamum, I don't know if we call, the per, call them Pergamites or Pergamines or... Pergamonians, or so I'm just calling the people Pergamon. So here's what you have: you have people in your church teaching idolatry and sexual immorality, just like Balaam did. So you also have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I think that these are the same. I think that what's going on is this group, this group of Nicolaitans, we don't know much about them, but I think this text gives us what they taught. 
you also tolerate this group of people called the Nicolaitans. So in other words, what Balaam was to Israel in the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans are to the church in the New Testament. And basically what they taught was, they taught that, listen, you, can have, you have freedom in Christ. And because you have freedom in Christ, you can go ahead and live as you want to live. You can go ahead and, and live in accordance with your passions and your lusts. It's okay. We see this in the book of Jude, we see this in 1 Peter, and we see this in Revelation. This group rose up and they taught sexual immorality and idolatry. In other words, they taught that freedom of Christ meant freedom to sin. And there are people today who would tell you the exact same thing. There are quoting evangelical churches that basically say you're saved by grace and not by works of the law. And so therefore, you can live however you want because you're under grace, not under the law. You ever heard anybody say something like that? I hear it a lot. Hey, I'm under grace. I'm not under the law. Listen, you enter into the kingdom of you enter into the kingdom of God by grace and by grace alone. You cannot earn your way into the kingdom of God. However, in the kingdom of God, there are laws to follow. You say, that's legalistic. No, it's not. There are laws to follow. Let me give you one. How many think that now that you're under grace, you can murder somebody? They'd all say, no. Well, the law. Even though you may feel like strangling your kids at times or something like that, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to steal. You're not allowed to worship any other God but, but God Almighty. And so these, this group was teaching that freedom in Christ meant freedom to sin. You should also note that this group, just like the Israelites did not deny the core doctrine, the Israelites, when Balaam came, came along, they never denied Yahweh. They never said, Cursed be Yahweh. Never said that. They continued worshiping Yahweh. They just added the worship of the Moabites to their worship. And they just added the practices of pagan worship to their worship. That's all they did. They never denied Yahweh. Not in their words. They never said Yahweh be cursed or we're not worshiping Yahweh anymore. They simply said, well, we're worshiping Yahweh and this is one of the ways that we go about it. By adding these other things. Idolatry and sexual immorality helps us worship Yahweh. That's part of worshiping Yahweh. And so this group that the people of Pergamum have amongst them that they are tolerating are not denying the core doctrines of the Christian faith. They are not denying the incarnation or the deity of Christ or the, even the second coming of Christ or any of these things. They're just saying that, listen, you're under grace and not under the law, so hey, eat, drink, and be merry. Live as you want. And Christ doesn't care. was very popular teaching in those days. Basically, they taught that um, your body, this material part of you, was evil, and that your spirit part of you was good, and so anything you do in the body doesn't affect your spirit. So you can live that. This was really popular. 
Very common teaching. That you can do whatever you want because it only affects the body. And the body's evil anyways. It's going to perish and die and it's corrupt. Your spirit is good and your spirit's been redeemed by Christ and so therefore you're good to go. Eat, drink, and be merry. And it will affect you. Here's what we see in the church of Pergamum. What Satan was unable to accomplish through the beast, he accomplishes through the harlot. What Satan could not accomplish through outward persecution, he accomplishes through seduction. And these are the two threats to the church all the way through the book of Revelation. We see the overpowering control of the beast and authority and power. I will kill you if you do not bow down and worship me. Pergamum was good against that. They said, hey, we're not bowing down. The other threat is to compromise the faith of Christ and to be seduced by false religion. In Nazi Germany, Hitler was very, very don't want to say he was wise because he was an utter nut job. But he knew people. And very early on, he began to seduce the church. He hated the church. Despised the church. Very early on, he began to seduce her. And he began to say, hey, I'm with y'all. I'm on your side. And he began to build in the church a nationalistic pride, a civil pride. Hey, man, we've got to restore our restored Germany back to the way things were and everything was gotten so corrupt and bad and we're going to restore Germany to the way it was and new church people are on and pretty soon the German church adopted Nazism not because Hitler said do it or you die but says I'm going to restore Germany back to its former glory and I need you to be part of that and little by little he began destroy them. And when they were finally, when finally the church in Germany split and you had the confessing church on one side and the, and the German church on the other side, the German church was wholeheartedly in favor of Nazism and <coughs> Jews and all that stuff. And the confessing church now came to them with power. And he said, I'll kill you all. I got my church. They're on my side. You guys know I kill. He had them both. He had both the heart of them and the beast gone. Pergamon was strong against the beast. But she failed to discern against the harlot. Jesus gives them a remedy. Repent. Repent and turn around and go the other way. I think what's going on here is when Jesus says repent, I think the idea is kick them out. I could be wrong there, but I think the idea of repentance here is get rid of them. Get rid of these false teachers. Kick them out of your church. He says, and I will come to you and make war against them. In other words, I'll come and I'll clean house. Either you clean house or I clean house. The house is getting clean. Now who's going to do it? Let me tell you, you're going to be better off doing it yourself. 
Because when I come, then nobody's getting out of this thing. So repent. And then he offers this threefold promise. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them. Notice, with the sword of my mouth. With the authority of my word. By the way, it's interesting because Balaam died by the sword. Just an interesting little nugget there. So you see the sword that's coming out of the mouth of Christ is very significant to these people. It symbolizes the sword, the authority of Rome, the authority of Christ, how Christ is going to deal with false teachers. I'm coming. And I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Now, what is this hidden manna? Well, there's all probably about a thousand different ideas out there. And probably any book you pick up will give you a, a variety of ideas. I'm going to give you my preferred idea. I'm willing to be wrong on this. I think the hidden manna is Christ himself. And the reason I think the hidden manna is Christ himself is back to what we discussed when we were taking the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died and he compared himself to the bread that comes down out of heaven. Manna was the bread that came down out of heaven and Jesus says, I'm the bread that comes down out of heaven. If you partake of me, you'll live forever. And the fact that Jesus, the bread of life, is unseen take to understand that Jesus referred himself. Repent. And what you get is me. You don't see me, but I feed you and I nourish you. The bread of heaven, why did man come down? Not only to feed the people, but so that the people of Israel would realize that man does not live on bread alone by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Why don't we have of Jesus? The very Word of God who feeds us, who nourishes us. We don't see Him, but He nourishes and feeds us. He is the bread of life comes down out of heaven. Repent and I'll give you myself. What better promise could there be? Well, I'll give you a white stone. What's a white stone? Well, again, probably about a thousand different ideas on this. But I think probably our best ideas and perhaps maybe the most common one is white stones were, were used for a couple of different things. White stones were used um, to show forth acquittal in, in, in a judicial case. A white stone and a black stone. A white stone would be acquittal. A black stone would be guilty. That would be one way that a white stone would be used. And of course we see this in the uh, priests, the Jewish priests also had a white stone and a, and a black stone. Basically a positive, a, a yes and a no. So this would make sense. The other thing, in places like Pergamum and other Roman cities, that a white stone was used to, as an invitation to gain access to an event. I'll give you a white stone. Acquittal and access. I'll give you myself, and you will be charged not guilty, and you will have access. Access to what? I can always think that I, I will give you access to my kingdom. I will give you access to eternal life. 
You will have me. You will be declared not guilty. And all the kingdom of heaven is yours. Repent. And then finally, a new name will be written on that stone which no one knows but he who receives it. New names were given, you'll notice that new names were given to various people throughout the scriptures. And names were important. Names, when you name something, you demonstrated authority and ownership. Remember when Adam was kind of in the garden there before his fall? And what did he do? The animals brought to him and he named them. Why? Because he had authority over them. Remember Abram? God says, your name is no longer to be Abram. It's Abraham. I own you, Abraham. Basically saying, I have authority over you. And Sarah, Sarah, your wife should be called Sarah. This is a way of maintaining authority and ownership. Jesus gave new names to Peter. You're not seeking any longer. You're Peter. Jesus seems to, God's renames people. And that was, remember when um, the, the children of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, went into Babylon? Those were the names given to them. That wasn't their original names. They had Hebrew names. Why did they get new names? Show worship and authority. We own you. Babylon owns you. You now belong to us. And I'll give you a new name. So oftentimes when a new relationship with God was entered into, a new name was given. And we see this in Isaiah 62. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. He's talking to his people and saying, there's going to come a day, I'm going to give you a new name. I think this is fulfilling that prophecy. I'm going to give my people a new name. Repent, and you will have me, and you will have be declared not guilty, and you will have access to my kingdom, and I will have authority over you, and I will give you a new name. You will be mine, and I will be yours. I think that's what's going on here. So we'll conclude with this. It's interesting when we compare the church of Pergamum with the Ephesian church because the Ephesian church was able to maintain doctrinal purity, but they did so at the expense of love. The Nicolaitan, the, the Pergamum church, were willing to accept any teaching, but they loved the false teachers. They had love but no doctrinal purity. Folks, we need to have both doctrinal purity and love. We should learn that the word of Jesus is sharp and it cuts in both directions. It will expose your sins and it will purify you. And we will be judged by the word of God. We should also recognize that Satan will employ threats to cause us to compromise in order to destroy the church of Jesus. We are to be alert to all those attacks. And I want you to understand we need to maintain diligent doctrinal purity as well as moral purity and to love one another. Love one another even enough to say, man, you're going on the wrong path. You realize that it is the Word of God who will purify and judge us and we should stand firm in what God has to say. Let's stand and let's pray.